Welcome to the Who Asked Podcast, third episode. Today's episode is going to focus on Hateful Eight, the eighth film in the Quentin Tarantino universe, the Quentin Tarantino filmverse, the Cineverse, the Quentin Tarantino filmography. Now, this is a movie that almost didn't happen. There was a small amount of time where movie wasn't going to be made. I uh, remember being a big fan of, and we'll get into this more later in the episode, being a big fan of following everything that sort of happened in the fallout of the script's leak, the original draft of the script leaking. The movie then went on to be done in a uh, wonderful sort of staged reading. No, not staged so much as a, a script reading, a public script reading. Well received, inspired the director to continue on with the idea. She was potentially, as I just said, thinking about scrapping because of the leak, turned into a traveling roadshow film history extravaganza experience with an intermission with this 70 millimeter gorgeous sort of exclusive experience that people were provided, uh, something that mattered a lot to Quentin Tarantino and something that became sort of essential to the, to the film's identity, this 70 millimeter film. Um, the movie, in my opinion is good it's it holds up with his other uh top sort of films in his discography i'm very excited to hear about my co-host opinions i've watched the movie with james never with penny uh so i'm really really excited to hear i'm gonna pitch it over to james right now because i've got i could talk about this movie for the whole hour myself but that's not what i'm going to that's not what i'm here to do and this was james's choice this week so i'm gonna pitch this over to hear a little bit about why he picked this movie what his thoughts were going into it and uh, maybe why or why not he thought it worked for the show before we even get started. Let's hear it. Um, so after, you know, trying to live up to Penny's your name suggestion, <laughs> um, it was admittedly pretty tough. But I tried to think of a movie that I, I, I loved, but uh, didn't really want to watch again. Um, I wanted to not just pick, you know, things I had great things to say about. I wanted, you know, interesting, good movies that I feel are not really talked about a lot because uh, I would have just picked, you know, Django for uh, or Pulp Fiction for a Tarantino movie uh, if I just wanted to, you know, praise it nonstop and I wanted you guys to just love it. Well, no, and I'm glad you didn't because this is, I think, a more interesting movie to talk about. Um, yeah, I, in my opinion, it definitely is. Um, it is my favorite uh, Tarantino movie. Uh, not that I think it's the best. Um, although, actually, no, I probably do think it's the best. Um, but I'm going to jump right into the ratings, and then I can uh, give a quick synopsis. It's not very quick. The movie's three hours and seven minutes long. But, uh, all right, my rating. I gave this a solid 8.25 out of 10. Um, here, here. With the tagline, uh, while being a long movie... Hateful Eight continues to keep you wondering, intrigued, and in suspense the entire time up until the end. Excellent. Very excellent. So don't know what my 10 out of 10 rating would be necessarily off the dome, but I can say this is one of the movies I have seen more times than any other film in my life. I've seen this film double-digit amount of times, which is especially funny considering its length, but this was a movie that me and my friends watched in our college dorm constantly, sometimes more than once a week. We were just watched this movie over and over. Uh, I think it's very, very good as well. It's one of my favorites of his. Penny, what were your thoughts on it? Your, your sort of off the off the cuff thoughts. For yeah, her. very interesting. So, just a refresher. I'm not really a movie person. 
<laughs> so I don't watch a lot of movies. Um, I actually can get very bored when watching movies. And that's kind of what happened with a lot of this movie. I'm not going to lie. Um, it was kind of slow in parts, kind of hard to follow for me. If I had to give it a rating right now, what would I, I would probably say maybe like a five out of 10, honestly, I want to say four even, but the ending was pretty satisfying. I did like the ending a lot. So I'll bump um, it up to a five. For your ratings, do you, do you base it on the, uh, like out of like one through 10 or do you base like five as your middle? What? You know, like, what is your scale based off a zero or is it based off a five? Oh, uh, I mean, I guess I could give a movie a zero, but I don't, I don't think I would, but yeah, sure. So 10 to zero or zero to 10. Okay. <clears throat> so yeah, but I, maybe about middle of the way. Um, how I base my ratings is, uh, like five is, is basically neutral. I did not enjoy it and I did not dislike it. Right. I just watched it. Mm. Um, Anything above five was objectively enjoyable to some degree. Anything below five, I did not enjoy. I yeah. think in the I think in the film the filmography of Quentin Tarantino, I think it's above the sort of like halfway point as far as quality. Without undoubtedly, for me, but also like, I guess I could understand how someone who's not super into the movie watch like this this and the last couple movies by Quentin Tarantino, I feel like we're like odes to movies in general odes to like movies and like the, the tropes and qualities that movies have so doing this like three to four hour like borderline stage play bottle episode cowboy thing definitely definitely is polarizing there are people yeah. who are going to be like oh i'm not i'm not oh i get that for sure yeah and i mean some of the notes that i was writing down when i was watching it is like oh my gosh, like, is this movie, how is this movie still going? Like, it's so slow. Oh, and I'm like, there, <laughs> like, how can there be 45 minutes less to, left to this movie when I was watching the very last chapter of it? Um, which it did get better in the last chapter. I really did like that part. Um, but like, also, I gotta say, history was probably my worst subject when I was in school. And really, I feel like knowing a little more about the history and, you know, like I was Googling things when I was watching it just to kind of make sure I was on track to kind of understand parts of it. That's wonderful. What didn't you understand, <laughs> if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, like, it was obviously supposed to have taken place in history, I guess, like, around the Civil War. Is that right? Uh, I was assuming, like, 1890s. Or after the Civil War. This is taking place, know. like, just after the Civil War. I'm yeah, sure. so, like... Oh, really? Yeah, they mentioned the battle of... Where was the... Some battle, battle of New Orleans. No, they mentioned another battle, but I had to Google the battle. I've heard, I've heard of it. Baton Rouge, the Battle of Baton Rouge. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've definitely, I mean, I've heard of that. You know, we've learned it in history, but yeah. like I had to Google it to be like, okay, when did this happen? What was this referencing? Kind of just to understand more of when this was taking place. Because, you know, the first thing they really hit you with is like, they start saying the N-word all the time. And like, obviously cool. you can yeah. tell whites and blacks are not equal. And then the way he's treating the woman and you could immediately, I could tell, oh, this is not present time but i i had to do some of my research to kind of catch myself up so definitely i don't think i was the intended target audience so that being said i think they they did a good job though but it was kind of lengthy um i'm gonna i'm gonna hit the very short synopsis really quick um to catch anyone up who does not remember it um or 
has not seen it because this was a, this did come out five years ago. Yeah. Um, but uh, in 1877, uh, the movie starts with John Ruth, the Hangman, and uh, Marquise West, uh, played by Samuel Jackson, and Kurt Russell, uh, not respectively, uh, coming together to transport dead bodies that had bounties on them. John Ruth was transporting a woman named Daisy Domagoo. Uh, she is basically what the entire plot, she is the MacGuffin that uh, everyone is uh, unknowingly playing for. Uh, during a blizzard that hits on their travel to Red Rock to cash in the bounties, uh, Marquise and uh, John basically get into a large game of Clue. Of a uh, who done it, of Among Us. <laughs> Among Us, uh, yes, I wrote who that. Who was the imposter? It does have big Among Us vibes. With uh, <laughs> four people already being at the inn that they had to stay at, the haberdashery, I should say. Uh, the movie plays with these kind of themes of who can and can't be trusted, who has done and not done stuff, while uh, simultaneously unwinding the tale of what had actually happened at this haberdashery in the past. And by the past, it means that day. Um, it all culminates with uh, you trying to figure out who is working with Daisy. Uh, and it turns out everyone is working with Daisy. <laughs> the twist was that it was not just one or two. It was all of them and then more. There was someone underneath the floorboards we didn't even get to that was working with Daisy to free her from this bounty hunter. Um, in the end... The so-called good guys win. The bounty hunters win. Uh, a pyrrhic victory of It's killing so all those... interesting to call them the good guys. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, it's like by the very end chapter, you really have this feeling that like some of the moral people may be – Now, now Major Marquess is like just this perfect gray line. But him and, him and uh, the Chris Mannix character, they definitely win and they definitely are like the law – putting out the justice that's talked about in that first chapter of it but the way daisy talks when she really drops the act and starts acting like herself like you start being like oh like was this the good guy all along like was this the person who like like though like repugnant and vile like are they the people who might actually have the moral center it's, it's very very interesting because mm -hmm. none of them are good like that's the whole point of the movie too is everyone it, the way it's made and the characters are designed is to be like all these sort of side characters from old cowboy westerns that are completely untrustable and you go through the whole episode slash movie wondering can I trust them until they either die or, or save the day. Yeah, I actually wrote wow, what a ride in my notes. Like, <laughs> even though it was slow at parts, every time there was a plot twist, it was like whoa, Like I did not see that coming. And it seemed like, like you said, it seemed like every character was a main character by the end of the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was the number one thing I wrote um, in my notes and in my review, that uh, every single character from the smallest part, so the um, the uh, the black man who had just started working at the Haberdashery yeah. that had maybe 20 seconds of screen time, they had their own unique identity and story um, that you could, like, interpret. Like... In the 20 seconds that that man was on um, screen, he, like, you could tell that he had just, well, not tell, he admitted he had just started the job. He doesn't care about them and that he's a coward just trying to save his own life. 
Uh, yeah, that's a wonderful performance. Um, but um, up until, you know, uh, West, who, you know, was, in my opinion, like the protagonist of the movie, um, he got Samuel Jackson got top billing for the movie. Um, but that doesn't really imply anything. Um, well, that yeah, character like, actually um, is created. Well, something interesting when this movie was conceived, it originally was conceived as a novel to follow yeah. up Django called Django and White Hell about Django being like stuck in a cabin in a blizzard with all these untrustworthy people. But the reason that he changed it to Major Marquess was like, um, or Marquess was he wanted it to be, there is no person that you completely, totally trust. So Marquess is like the closest because he's replacing that Django character, but he made it its own character specifically. And I think to the, to the movies sort of like betterment. He made it his own. If it was Django and a Django two, this would have been a worse movie, in my opinion. I completely agree. But but uh, the the whole point of this movie really comes down to the that on that great cast too. Everyone plays it great. Oh my gosh! So the the well, I was gonna say one of the main characters, but <laughs> so um, Kurt Russell. Yeah. The one of the first guys that appears in the movie. Um, all I could think about the whole movie every time he said anything was. Is this Santa Claus? Like, the- <laughs> have you guys seen uh, the yeah, yeah. Chronicles? That <laughs> is my Chronicles. first. That's my first Kurt Russell movie. So, like, I'm like, why does why do I feel like Christmas right now? And I finally Googled it and learned that he was he was Santa Claus, and it just really threw me off the whole time because that's he's so, so vulgar fucking and- <laughs> funny. <laughs> he's so vulgar and rude and disgusting, and I was like, just. Oh, Santa Claus. <laughs> so you can tell this movie is like a complete ode to The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. And that's yes. a classic horror movie. A uh, little fun fact that I learned in my research that I'd never known, despite seeing this movie so much and knowing, like, learning so much about it as much as I could, I found out that the score is made up of unused pieces of score from the original The Thing score. Not only that, oh. but uh, the, the composer created new stuff for well, that's, this movie. Well, that's exactly it. Is, uh, yeah. Tarantino had never done an original score, so when he reached out to him about doing it, he mentioned, you know, uh, the Thing score is is so brilliant, so amazing. The guy was like, well, maybe I can write something. You know, I've got these other things going on, but maybe I can write something, and then I'll give you old, unused pieces from the original The Thing score, and you can, together with the theme and those pieces, you can do it. And then the next day when he saw him, he was like, I'm going to write even more. I like it even more. He read the script, and he was like, I'm going to write more. So he wrote a few songs, wrote like 30 minutes of new music, old, the unused, the thing pieces. And just to finally top off the, the whole the thing reference, Kurt Russell, as a very young guy, is the lead in that movie, Penny. And that's like probably the sort of career-defining movie of, of his early career. And mm-hmm. so that movie became like the only movie that Quentin Tarantino like screened to them specifically to base their sort of performances by or around. I did pick up on a couple of like humorous, like really dry humor in this movie. Like specifically when they like were trying to bust down the door and they were like, you got to push the door down. And then they get in and they're like, you got to board the door. Get two boards. Love those parts. <laughs> I died during that. And I kind of expected to see more of that humor, but I did it. I didn't see a lot of it. Um, is, like that, that. is that slapstick, though? I don't know anything about comedy. Oh, it's it's definitely, like, in some ways, it's more just so just, like, comedy of, like, 
like uh, the elasticity of like sort of situations and stuff. That's like Bergman, but it, it's it's um specifically it's just sort of re- repetition and like setting up patterns. So we know <laughs> from the first time they enter that every time someone comes in, they're gonna go through this charade of <laughs> screaming as loud as they can because no one knows what to do. I wouldn't shower. Yeah, I personally, this was the first time I've seen it and had a certain specific thought process, which was when I first saw the movie, I somehow missed that Channing Tatum's name was in the credits in the beginning. So when he popped out, I was truly so surprised because I had no, I thought he was uncredited. I thought he was unbilled, but he is billed. I, and I've seen that since then. Mm-hmm. And this time when I saw his name, even though I knew exactly where he is in the movie at the very end, or, or like right before, right after the... Um, they kill Marco the Mexican. I was like, oh, how funny would it be if Channing Tatum showed up in like the fourth or fifth chapter <laughs> as a totally new stranger who almost died? <laughs> and he kicks this door into this place and they start screaming at like this Yeti frozen man. But like, obviously, that's, I, I think the way that it's done is better. It's such a great reveal that he's been under there the whole time. And then he has that chilling, chilling fourth chapter. I love them in that fourth chapter. That one's fantastic. The I enjoyed fourth. that one. Sorry, the fourth one, the fourth one, the flashback one. Yeah. As yeah. soon as the, I was watching the fourth chapter and like James said, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is among us. <laughs> yeah. And absolutely. It was like, especially when he was like, I don't know who did it, but I know you were doing this. And, and meanwhile, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Like, this is just like among us. Yeah. yeah. The one person that seems to know everything that's going on, making the accusations. When you rewatch this movie, you see that Marquess knew from like the very beginning, too. Yep. Right. Um, so I I had um, two things. One, I was just about to say that that um, I keep calling him West uh, Marquess. Is that how you say his name? I thought it'd be Marquis because it's a French Marquis? name, but they all mispronounce it as Marquess because they have all those like Southern accents, even though they're in Wyoming. <laughs> um, everybody's got this every the rebel oh and and let's just like i'm gonna take a second and just talk about how phenomenal walton goggins is in the movie as chris mannix as the sheriff he he does cowboys a lot but he manages to make you enjoy watching this confederate rebel renegade punk like he's just like a young punk and he is one of the best like most relatable characters it, it's this perfectly written sort of like you you really shouldn't on paper like this person but comparatively to everyone else it's like how can you not like this guy and root for him i don't know i kind of hated him i hated them all <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad you did that that's definitely the you didn't have a favorite oh i don't know i mean i loved and hated a lot of them for different reasons i don't know but again with the southern accent oh my god i hate i hated it so much so I live in Southeast Missouri, which is like right on the border of what you would consider the South. Um, so I don't know. I'm just, I get really defensive about that Southern. <laughs> that, like everyone will say, oh, you're from the South. No, I'm not. <laughs> I associate that accent with um, some of the people that live around here that, you know, they just, they take pride in their Southern I call it Southern ignorance. Not everybody in the South is ignorant, obviously, but um, a lot of people around here are what you call a redneck <laughs> and really take pride in like, oh yeah, this accent. I grew up on the farm, even though you know, 
no there's no the like farm. yeah nobody there's no farms in jackson missouri but james do you have a favorite i have a favorite character and a favorite performance and they're not the same bum, bum, uh, bum. john ruth john the hangman ruth <laughs> is my favorite <laughs> yeah. character um because um I don't know. I just really liked him um, as a character. But I think uh, Samuel L. Jackson's performance of uh, Marquis West uh, was absolutely phenomenal. I think he was fantastically written. I think he was the best written character uh, by far in the uh, the movie. Uh, he was not... Um, uh, like, he kind of towed the line whether, like you said, to be trusted... Um, he kind of throws the audience for a loop. Like you trust this guy, you think he's genuine, you know he's smart and capable, and then he hits you with, "Oh, this Lincoln letter's fake, dude." Um, and then like it kind of throws you for a loop as like, "Who is this man?" Um, like the founding idea, the first thing we're introduced about this guy is that he has a Lincoln letter, and then we find out he is a disgraced, disgraced with air quotes. No one can see those though. Um, <laughs> Uh, Union cavalry leader um, with his one claim to fame being that he had a letter from Lincoln and it's fake. So like the two things we knew about him to give him like honor have been like taken away from him. Um, and I just want to so. circle back for a second to that story. Uh, Penny, did I talked about in the beginning, had you heard about the original script for this leaking before no. you saw this? I've never so, even heard of this movie. So that's that's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna flesh that out a bit then. Quentin Tarantino is talking about oh I'm working on my eighth film, and Quentin Tarantino I guess like historically I did I listened to a lot of his interviews about this movie for this. So I heard him talking about how this was the first movie that he specifically set out to write multiple final drafts of. He would write the movie to like its completion, a full first draft that was like ready to be read. And then he would give that a whole like sort of like resting period, go at it again. So he wrote the first draft and that became – that got leaked on the internet. Someone leaked that online for like anyone to read. And so he almost scrapped the movie. And something interesting about that first draft that he had talked about was that the Lincoln letter in the first draft is only in one scene in the beginning. It's brought up. You see it. You hear about it. And then it's never brought up again. It's just sort of a character establishment, which I found super interesting because it's it's a core symbol of the movie and of that character, which is, like you said, top billing character, one of the last to sort of live on until they all die. It's a, it's a great piece, and it perfectly complexifies his character. Complexifies. <laughs> but uh, I found it super interesting in the set. He talked about the second draft in this one interview. He was like, oh, and at the end, the exact same situation happens. Chris Mannix, Marquess Warren read the Lincoln letter together out loud. Chris, someone reads it to Marquess as they're both dying. And then they sort of have this little interaction and it's done. But it was Daisy. Daisy and him were the last two alive. They're both bleeding out. And she reads the Lincoln letter because she hasn't gotten to read it yet. But I found I found that to be, you know not as good, but a super interesting idea for an ending. Yeah, I didn't. In, the, in I, the first draft, she just gets capped. Up. Do you remember when she got shot in the foot? Yeah, that she just gets shot in the head in the in that original leaked draft. She dies right there. Oh, I I wonder like why did they not just kill her like way sooner? So like many after... so many times to kill her. Totally. Yeah, like especially after um, John dies, like he's the one that just kill, he's the, like 
like Samuel Jackson's character says, like that's the only person who wanted to see you go there alive. Yeah, now you so just then, be killed, and then they don't kill her did. for like an hour and yeah. fifteen minutes. <laughs> um, so I thought about that, but there's definitely purpose, and uh, I imagine with how practical and intelligent uh, Marquise is, or Marquis. I'm just going to call him Mr. West like Kanye. Um, uh, Mr. West is. Um, Mark I, West. Uh, Mark, Mark West. Um, it got to the point where he knew someone was helping Daisy. With Daisy dead, these people would have no reason to not kill them. Yeah. It would just become a shootout as soon as da- oh, Daisy's the thing keeping the them holding up the facade yeah. that they're the good guys. It, it, oh. It's weird because Daisy is the thing that everyone wants and Daisy is the thing everyone is willing to kill over. But at the same time, Daisy is the only thing keeping order because it's the thing that the two sides want. That makes sense. One doesn't care if she's dead or alive. They want her and their lives. Mm-hmm. But the other side, the Damagu gang... Um, wants Daisy alive, obviously. <laughs> so as soon as Channing Tatum shoots Samuel L. Jackson in the floor uh, from the floorboards or from the basement, whatever, my in first thought was, yeah, <laughs> my first thought is, oh, why didn't he just keep shooting? You know, Samuel L. Jackson was on the bed. Seems pretty easy to locate via sound. He's not moving. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, because there's two of them, and if he shoots again, they'll just shoot Daisy immediately. So I assume that off screen, they were probably like, yo, you shoot again. We're going to put a bullet in her head. (laughs) So again, she's the only thing standing between them and death. Uh Um, And um, the one of the first that was the first issue I had with the movie was why Channing Tatum didn't just start blowing brains out. (laughs) And I thought about it. I sat down and uh, I kind of accepted the fact that it would be like a mutually assured destruction shootout um there there i I had some issues with the movie um obviously which is why i didn't give it a 10 Uh, i think length is definitely one of them uh as you said penny i was uh you know intrigued i was thinking the entire time i was in suspense the entire time but uh wow this was a long movie for for one setting uh, basically it takes part in one room or one building. Um, you can see basically all the characters at once as soon as they're gathered, which is at the end of the first chapter. So, you know, the last four-fifths of the movie. And um, while I think it's done very well, it, it, it drags during some parts. There's some very, very boring parts. Yeah, it seems like um, they did a lot of character building in the beginning. And I was yeah. really starting to lose interest until chapter four and five. And that's when it really starts to pick up for me. Um, I think they spend uh, far too long talking about the horses, getting settled in the haberdashery in the first place, you know, like putting out the lines to the toilet, um, you know, yeah. going to dump the guns in the toilet, putting the horses in the stable, the horses in the stable kind of, you know, uh, worked for a purpose because they were able to talk to um, the Mexican mm-hmm. um, and you start getting your first seeds of doubt and immediately you start thinking oh it's the Mexican Marco the Mexican um, Senor Bob is one of the really underrated characters in the movie I think because I know like you'd hear a lot of favorites from people I feel like you would get less 
statistically probability wise you get less people saying senor bob or marco the mexican whatever you want to call him but he provides so much for the movie in my opinion i agree uh, he is definitely i think his main purpose is um is, is to be the person that people suspect like he he is the suspect um that like the way your uh, expectations are subverted is you think okay it's definitely bob who else is it, it like when i was thinking i was thinking oh hey, there's one more person uh, like that—that's how they're going to subvert my expectations. The first uh, time—the first time I saw the movie, I remember really thinking it would be um, the Hangman. And what it, it, the thing about guessing is, it's like you're going to guess right no matter what. So it's like there's no yeah. there's no reason why you would you should care whether you guessed who you guessed first time you see it because it's like they're all they're all sus for a reason. Um. The, so I hadn't seen this in many years. Um, I had forgotten what happened. <laughs> uh, I had forgotten what happens besides the Channing Tatum shoots off uh, Jackson's balls in the fifth chapter. You've forgotten most of the things but that? Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, I, had, I had forgotten basically everything. I remember there was a confederate that uh, Sam Jackson coaxed into killing uh, in self-defense, which I definitely want to talk about later. Because uh, that was another one of my big issues. Um, one of the uh, the things that I thought about immediately, and I know I touched upon it earlier, is that, um, and I know we talked about this in your name, but when I'm watching a movie, I'm constantly thinking, how are they going to subvert my expectations? Because that's how, whether it's comedy, whether it's horror, whether it's, you know, just being in shock as to what's happening. It all has to do with, you know, not doing what you expect it to do. Yeah. So sure. I thought, oh, instead of being one person, it's going to be two. <laughs> like, that's the subversion. Like, oh, it's not just Bob. It's Bob and the hangman or Bob and someone else. Um, I feel like Bob and Joe Gage are both equally as sus as being involved in it. Especially when you see uh, Bob play the piano during the the poisoning yeah um i mean that's when it solidifies that there's two people yeah facts um and then i was like i was like oh that's the subversion like i was right <laughs> and then and then tarantino cranks it up to 11 and goes no it's not one it's not two oh, God. it's not three it's not four of them but it's four of them and a hidden one <laughs> and it's like Oh my, it's literally everyone and then some. Even the Confederate, he wasn't in on it necessarily, but he was in on it to save his own skin because he was also kind of a victim in this. <laughs> I did think um, that was funny. They're just like, he's like, kind of cute. Let's leave him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great, that's, that's a great charm. part. That's a great part for yeah. sure. It doesn't um, add much, but he adds something. <laughs> I, I Okay, so I wrote down some of my gripes with the movie. And the fact that they left the general alive uh, bothered me a lot. Um, they seemed so uh, sophisticated. Maybe not sophisticated, but like uh, coordinated and meant business. And uh, they did not give a shit about anyone else. And for some reason, they were like, we're going to let this guy who saw everything. Yeah. 
Live. Well, I think it's I think it speaks to the different time. Like they manipulate him. The Jody that that scene with Jody Domingue and him, I think, is really supposed to show you how much of like a cult leading manipulator Jody Domingue was. The way he immediately plays into the racism, he immediately sort of like plays around with his mind, and and it in in a in a way what they were expecting was what's her name uh, uh, Daisy Domergue and John the Hangman Ruth to show up alone. With the driver, obviously. Yeah. They were expecting to get stuck with them for days. And it would make sense to have someone who doesn't bring any suspicious energy at all. But I also just like totally understand that it makes no sense in the scene of we're going to kill everyone right now. Where It's like the whole fourth chapter builds up to them. The suspense builds up to them doing the killing. You know they're going to kill everyone. Yeah. And, and they're clearly giving each other the side eyes about setting it up. And then when they finally do it, you're like... Okay, so they just didn't have the manpower to pick off this old man right away. <laughs> so then they just decide to improvise and keep him. Or is it like they didn't expect him? So then, well, actually, that is sort of the way it is. They didn't expect him to be there. I don't know. I agree that it's a risk, I think. It's a bigger risk. I agree. I agree. I just also I can see why and and like in the way that this is about the fates aligning and all these people who shouldn't know each other finding they they should be perfect strangers and they're all finding each other and know each other and have heard of each other eventually when things come out. I think that makes it make sense because then the Bruce Dern character, the old Confederate uh, uh, General Sandy Smithers or whatever needs to be there because he knows. Marquess Warren and Marquess Warren killed his son and, or didn't. We That's another debate we could have is if we think that's a true story or not. I think that is a highlight of the movie is oh. not knowing if that is true or not. Yeah, it's a great feeling. Did you enjoy that part of the movie, Penny? I hated it. So one <laughs> big thing I hated about this whole movie is why is it so vulgar and so like gory? There's so much. It, it's just too much blood and murder and. So you probably weren't about it when Marco the Mexican's head popped like a fucking zit then. <laughs> no, and then I wrote down like when John gets killed and he's vomiting oh, yeah. all in Daisy's face and it's I there for the rest of the movie and then they actually show her being hung or hanged, I guess is the proper term. Like that was – it was really turned me off from it. It was really hard to watch. <laughs> Yeah, some people. I guess I just chalked that up to some people fucking get off on that shit and love it. Oh, I hated it. Definitely feel you though. But you didn't like him sucking the dick in the blizzard. <laughs> no, actually, I was really surprised that there was like full on nudity there. I was like, usually yeah, like, nudity, it's like you know some boobs or something. I was like, oh my god. It's never soft schlong. Right. <laughs> For like I was five seconds. Netflix. I was like, are they gonna blur that? No. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but that, think, that part wasn't as bad as just like all of the gore. Oh, that's a great part. That's a great part of the movie. I love that part. It just seems so out of place. But I mean, I don't know. Some of the, the movie, that part and then like the narrating part, it just kind of caught me off guard. Like it didn't fit well, in the rest of My it. defense of the narration is that is coming out of a 15-minute intermission in the original intended viewing of the movie so you come back after he finally kills someone he's finally goaded him into being murdered and like i'm not going to defend it because i think uh tarantino's next movie once upon a time in hollywood also employed the only using narration one or two times thing which is like for me i dig it because i love little absurdism and i love a little absurdism in my filmmaking and i love sort of like 
pointless things being thrown in here and there just that work in the moment. But I understand people liking consistency and not digging it. For me, first time I saw the movie, that narration was far and away my favorite part. Well, my favorite Tarantino part in a Tarantino movie up to that point. I've since reconsidered because he's got some better roles in other movies. But I really liked that narration the first time I saw it. And I think a lot of it had to do with me sort of going in with the mindset of like, oh, and now there's a break. It's a tough movie to say. It's like two movies without the, yeah. without an intermission. Because yeah. you, you get that big moment and then you run right into the coffee puke. You run right into all the blood puke. <laughs> it happens right away. I love I love the line, um, Joe Gage volunteers to go outside with the bodies. The rest pick straws. Obi lost. And you know he has yeah. to go out in the blizzard again. That's very funny. Um, I think it was also um, for people who had a second watch, um, you could immediately tell who poisoned the coffee because anyone that went out in like sub zero degree blizzard would drink coffee, which Obi does. Yeah. But Gage does not. And yeah. it turns out obviously Gage is from the poisoned it. Yeah. Um, the narration kind of took it out, took me out of it for a second. Um, it didn't bother me too much, but it definitely was like, what? What's happening? Um, but now that you say that in like a fifteen minute intermission, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I wasn't really a fan, wasn't really not a fan. Um, I, I don't know. I was pretty indifferent on it. But my uh, my biggest issue with this movie, and then I can go into stuff I liked after we discuss this, is uh, the whole movie and touching about the brutality and vulgarity that Penny was talking about. Uh, is that this setting takes place in, in this, you know, untamed frontier, you know, of Wyoming. The whole thing is that there's, you know, it's a blizzard. It's an untamed wilderness out there. The blizzard is a character um, in and of itself. Yeah. Very much so. Um, there's, you know, the whole thing revolves around gangs, this massive blizzard, a missing son, uh, you know, bounty hunters. Like, this, like, is the Wild West. You know, it has a sheriff, a hangman. Like, you can't get any more frontiersy than this. They even literally quite on the nose talk about uh, frontier justice. And um, so it's very much in the time frame of, like, the brutality of the frontier. Um, and it portrays that. And then, for some reason, a black man goads a Confederate general into grabbing a gun that everyone saw it coming. Everyone saw that he wanted him to do this. And then he shoots him with a very flimsy self-defense, um, you know, uh, argument, I should say. Self-defense defense. defense. <laughs> um, and uh, the openly racist Confederate sheriff is just like, all right, the legality checks out. And I know they said, oh, they <laughs> argued about it. But, like, that's not what would have happened. The sheriff would have killed him, like, like instantly. You know, like, he literally said that, like, he idolized that general. And then he goaded the general into grabbing a gun just so he could kill him. With that super vulgar story, which may or may not be true. There is no way West survives that in a realistic setting. Like, I know he had to survive for the story to keep going in the story that was written by Tarantino. But, like, that's by far my single biggest issue is that uh, they they kind of throw away with this frontier justice and the brutality of this world and setting 
and just go, I ah, know it's okay. Let me, um, you know, self defense. Let me jump in. Let me jump in because I want to, I want to argue with you for a second. I want to defend this idea that he would get away with it even in 1877, but only in Minnie's haberdashery, only in this microcosm of America, not in America as a whole, not in the frontier as a whole. I agree with what you're saying, but I think if you look at the remaining people around, Chris Mannix is entirely alone in thinking that he would in, in thinking that he should die. You got John Ruth who's still going to be on the side of Marquess cuz Marquess is helping protect Daisy. Daisy's chained up, but she would want Marquess to die. The rest of them aren't going to try and kill anyone because they're waiting and biding their time to save Daisy. So they're going to be disinterested. And I'm going to jump to that next part in the movie where Joe Gage surrenders. Do you know what I'm talking about? When it all gets yes. slowed down and Joe Gage is going, I ain't got no gun, Sheriff. I ain't got no gun. Yep. And that's when you like really get confirmed that Mannix is a sheriff. He's for real like supposed to be this like justice law guy. I think Mannix wouldn't kill Marquess unless it was a resounding anonymous like, you got to kill him, Sheriff. Like you got to kill him. He just killed that white man. Also like – I, 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 I'm speaking out of my ass because it's just – it's like a movie with – you know I just want to play devil's advocate a little for that because I sort of enjoy the idea of, of that happening and the rest of them sort of the, the hangman who is really a, 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 a gang member fronting as a hangman, a sheriff who's not enlisted or, or sash, like initiated in yet and John Ruth all arguing whether or not Bruce Dern had it coming is extremely interesting to me. Very funny. While he sips brandy, like it's a great picture. It's a great picture. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just like fair. I understand what you're saying. That it, it, I agree. Chris Mannix's character does seem to actually be a sheriff instead of, uh, um, you know, letting his racist views dictate uh, for his frontier justice or a subversion of justice into frontiers justice. Um, I I don't know. Penny, it's, did you, uh, Penny, Penny, did you like the part where he's going? My theory that the ugliest guy did it. <laughs> it oh, I, yeah. I wrote down the quote. Quote. I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. it yeah. Reminded me so much of Among Us. I <laughs> 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 was like, I told you so. That didn't That's really have so any idea what was going on. <laughs> That's so, <laughs> so funny. funny, Penny. <laughs> Yeah, I um I wanted to bring this up and we're you know, we are already sort of getting into a close to wrap up time. So before we lose our lose our sort of time to discuss this in full, I wanted to bring up how this movie was shot on location in Colorado, not Wyoming. They built Minnie's haberdashery in the middle of the Colorado mountains and they waited for blizzard days and they shot. Oh wow. So they, they shot in blizzards in this sort of time period authentic looking shack and then they rebuilt minnie's haberdashery on a soundstage in la and they filmed wow. all the interiors again oh so my they had, gosh they had two settings worth of film footage to pull from this to make this and That's they could crazy. pull they could pull stuff with the real genuine sunlight breaking through the the slats in the wood or the sort of fabricated soundstage stuff for cover-ups and better interior close-ups and stuff and they shot the whole movie on a crane what uh, like a like a film crane. I don't know if you've ever seen wow. an image of like an old timey like film camera crane, like they used to make like Ben Hur and shit. Huh. But they they shot the movie with the camera on a crane, 
okay. constantly sort of – I don't know about every single shop, but most of them. And if anyone's listening to this and knows a goddamn thing about Hateful Eight trivia, we know about the fucking guitar thing. Yeah. <laughs> We're not, I don't want to fucking hear someone later that we happen to know being like, I, I can't believe none of you brought up the guitar fun facts. What a crazy story. Um, I will say uh, this movie is – there are some quotes that I just absolutely loved. I generally don't really care about quotes. Just like – just like music, it has to be exceptional. Like your name, the music was exceptional, so I really liked it. You know, this movie, music, whatever. Uh, I generally don't care about quotes, but oh my god, this movie had so many good quotes. Um, a bastard's work is never done. Uh, do you want to know the day he died? The day he met me? <laughs> um, <laughs> the, I fucking knew it. <laughs> That's I one of the funniest parts, for sure. <laughs> I loved how the fifth chapter hit and all of a sudden bushwhacking <laughs> became a word in every single sentence. It was not used once. No, it's just then, the end. Yeah, you're right. And then it, you're a bushwhacker. Stop bushwhacking me. I'm going to bushwhack you. <laughs> I was I, what, I don't even know what this means. This could be a horrible story. Have you looked it up since? Have you looked no, it up since? I don't know what Are it you? means. You should look it up. I, it's just like an old timey Western term for killers and, and vagabonds. I'm pretty sure. I, I I just absolutely loved it. Um, I also uh, really really liked um, the. Oh oh, actually, I I wanna I wanna specify so you know. I I looked it up because for a second I was like, wait, I think I was wrong there. Bushwhackers were the specific sort of renegade, con- continually fighting past the end of the war Confederates. That were like waging war, oh. and and there were some union ones too. I'm pretty sure, but they were just like the the military forces that didn't stop fighting the war after the surrender. But then it just becomes a sort of like synonym for like killing out of out of turn and out of cold blood and that sort of thing. There was a quote that I liked. It was when John Ruth said, uh, "No one said the job was supposed to be easy," and then Major Marquess said, "No one said it was supposed to be that hard, neither." Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I really, that really hit me. I was like, oh. <laughs> I I love the part because I, I, I love to hate Chris Mannix. Every time I see this movie, I get a special joy in how much I despise and geek at Chris Mannix. And that part in the very beginning where he sets off with the most vile, racist storytelling and terrible things about Marquess, even though he's got the gun on him. And then he pressed the gun against his head and he starts smiling going, y'all got me talking politics. <laughs> that is, that is, I'm, I'm going to just sit here and just let this carriage rock me to sleep. <laughs> Think about how lucky I am. That part is fantastic. So stupid. <laughs> that was really funny. And they both, they have a very parallel, parallel line. There's a lot of great parallels in this movie. Um, when they have the soup and uh, John Ruth finds out that the letter is a lie and Daisy is laughing at him and doing the talk that sass, Warren, talk that sass line, <laughs> and he splashes the soup on her face. I've always yeah. taken that as a sort of foreshadowing parallel of all the gore that she's going to get in the face oh. later in the movie. Yeah. I've seen that as like a first of an escalation of that throughout the movie where next he vomits on her and the then she gets her brother's. Yeah, her brother's <laughs> guts and blood are all in her mouth, and she's freaking oh. out and scraping her mouth when, like, her and out of her hair, and she's going mm-hmm. like, "That's crazy, too." Uh, I, another part about that when she finally gets like splattered in her own brother, her like clearly like her favorite person in the world, Gore, 
she all of a sudden takes on this very like instead of snapping mentally and becoming like even more deranged she snaps and she just gets like laser focused she starts doing all the deal talk and talking about like the 15 men who probably don't exist i've always i've always taken it as they definitely were a fabrication agreed well i also considered that it never mattered because i i uh always assumed no one was making it out of there at that point with a, a gunshot to the leg, which was, you know, his whole leg was soaked in blood. Yeah. And Wes is, you know, he's not leaving. He's dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it just didn't matter. One of the point. greatest setups. It feels like the entire movie sets up that line at the end where Daisy says, well, you'd be wrong, Chris Mannix, because my brother leads an army of men. And Mannix goes, yo, yo your brother doesn't lead shit like my daddy led an <laughs> army of men. A Renegade <laughs> army fighting for the lost cause. I, lo- I love that part. It truly feels like the entire movie builds up to that interaction. Yeah, yeah, that is like the pinnacle of Chris Mannix. <laughs> and then, he, and then he, he gets so passionate that he faints and almost dies because of it. <laughs> Can you imagine this blizzard clears up um somebody comes to uh minnie's you know little place and walks in and sees all of this There's it, like has, it happens eventually for sure in this world it's a crazy thought if you also well, think about how the bodies are placed like the two guys are like basically laying bled out on like the kind of like on the bed leaning near each other like watching this woman hang <laughs> Yeah, walk in and be like, "Oh my!" What? God. But there's happened? just bodies everywhere, and yeah. like a lot and of what? them, a lot of them have posters with their faces on them in like in modern society. That well, then modern society. That's the only way to recognize people. So it's like, damn, we got five of the Dahmer goose. We got John the Hangman Ruth. That's like a fucking <laughs> Super Bowl party of famous people for that time. There's a lot of um, moments in this movie for me. That I've never been able to quite put my finger on how, but it's all of a sudden it feels like the characters sort of stop acting. Like, I don't even want to, like, like, this is what makes the movie not a 10 for me. There's a moment in the movie where every single character, respectively, they each have at least one moment where it's like, oh, that line falls so flat for some reason. All of a sudden, you are just like in a in a get up to it. A, a great way to put it: one of the very first lines in the movie for me, Ob's first line. Uh, I don't know what it is specifically, but every time I've seen the movie, it always starts out on this weird dissonant sort of chord that doesn't work for me. If you think of the the movie as like a piece of music, it's like the whole start for me is like, oh, that's like it grates on me. It doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel genuine. But there's fucking four hours of genuine movie around all these moments that make up for it for me. I get what you're saying. I did feel that a few times. Was the uh, the line you're thinking of the, where he's like, he paid a, paid a pretty penny for privacy? No, uh, by then I really like it. It's literally like whatever the first thing he says is. And he puts the, it's because it sounds unnatural, but it's a very actor thing to do to sort of like put the inflection on some word that wouldn't be normal. That way you sort of it helps define a sort of a character and a cadence. Okay. I love Ob's performance. I think he's one of the better, like in a movie that's all side characters playing as main characters. Ob is the side character, which is <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, that is a really interesting way to think about it. He's like the side character to the side characters. 
Like he's OB the driver. Yep. Like that's it. He doesn't like, have you think, some you think about it. There's the Mexican, the sheriff, the hangman, the 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 general, the driver. And it's like, oh wait, what was that last one? What is that guy up to? Is he like a big he's like a horse racer or something? You're like, nope, he just he rode the carriage in and they send him out to do little chores in the blizzard now and then. <laughs> um the the line like that for for me was uh was Gage's I'm just visiting my mama for Christmas. I don't want to. Seemed like what? Oh no, 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 no! Continue, please. Uh, it seemed like uh, they didn't even they didn't even try to fabricate. Like, like I don't know if Tarantino just didn't try to write anything for him. He had like, okay, this guy's the hangman. Which also, I just have so many questions. Is he actually the hangman? <laughs> is his is he like is his secret identity also a gang member? How does he have cards for the hangman? How does he have this warrant for this guy's execution? Um, did, did he kill the hangman and take his identity? I don't know. But uh, they have this very elaborate either second identity or stolen identity. I think it's stolen. Um, I think they killed the real Oswaldo Mowbray. I think that's probably a piece of what went into the planning of it. Let's kill the hangman of Red Rock, go up to Minnie's haberdashery and save her before she can even get there. It definitely sounds like it because he would be because his whole thing is about the hangman. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it works. But which is, I think, I think that's why they, I think that's why they may have Joe Gage's story be so flimsy, because they're like, well, they're not. He he's may not trust Joe Gage, this made up dumb character that we've created uh, for whatever his name is, Groucho or whatever his real name is, to pretend to be. But they're gonna believe the Hangman. John Ruth is gonna believe the Hangman, yeah. no doubt. And there's no reason John Ruth wouldn't believe in the Mexican who's taking care of the place for a week something that i wanted to talk about too real quick that mexican was um uh this man named damien this actor named damien who worked with rob robert rodriguez quite a bit and one of the my favorite stories i heard about was quentin tarantino going up to robert rodriguez they, they'd make um they made that vampire movie together that i'm i've seen but i'm blanking on the name of with selma hayek and tarantino's in it and george clooney's in it oh, but um, the foot scene yeah, it's got the foot scene with the snake. You're right, but um, uh, <laughs> but he um, he went to him and was like, "Do oh, you know? Do you know any like really good Mexican actors?" Because the first draft had that as a Frenchman, the character was a Frenchman, and then that eventually mm-hmm. morphed into the Mexican. And he was like, "Oh, you need this guy, Damien S. Something, Damien." Um, I don't want to. I mean, he's not going to ever fucking hear our podcast, but I don't want to discredit him. <laughs> I'm gonna look up the cast real quick so that I can just fucking say his name for real. Uh, he is uh, in the Tarantino movie that has come out since. Uh, Damien Bashir is his name, and he is a great actor. Uh, but it was Robert Rodriguez who was like, "Oh, uh, Damien Bashir, you have to cast him." Uh, every time I work with him, I tell him he's a Tarantino actor and that he needs to be in a Tarantino movie. And if you're casting for a Mexican, he's the guy to be. And so he he's the guy to get. And so he gets him, uh, he brings him in, and the entire Marco the Mexican character is, like, completely created through the performance. Apparently, like, the way Tarantino puts it, what's on the page is so drastically different from how it came out in the final (laughs) film. Just because this actor just took it upon himself to create such a real-life, like, true, genuine portrayal, and he just let him do his thing. And he, I think it's, I think it's one of the better acting performances in the movie. Like Zoe Bell, Zoe Bell plays the really, um, 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 the really nice, what's her name? Like six horse Susie or some bullshit. The really nice girl who runs the horses, uh, 
Six Horse Judy. That's what it is. Six Horse Judy. Uh, she never comes off as necessarily like bad acting, but she does come off as like, okay, like this person's character is a very performative person inherently. So to play it, you have to be this very performative performance. You know, it's like, just like customer service. But what uh, we're, we need to be wrapping up at this point. I'm fucking dawdling and idling on about the most <laughs> mundane, stupid things. Penny, what are your final thoughts on it? So, I really I started to really enjoy it after the fourth and especially the the last chapter. Um, it was really satisfying to see everybody like all the the quote unquote bad guys get killed, uh, <laughs> and especially the plot twist when you know Chris passes out and then he, you know he takes he takes. The, the good side, I guess you would say, and how they hang her. But um, I was a little confused with the ending and like them reading the Lincoln letter. Um, did that mean anything to you guys? Uh, I think it's an important moment for this rebel, renegade Confederate racist and this sort of lone wolf, black union, disgraced major. You've got them reading this thing that he's explained exists as a way to ward off white people's suspicion and make white people at ease. It was Chris Mannix who never believed it in the, in the first place. So it's, it's never been real to either of them as far as they've known about it in their lives. Uh, Marquess made it up and Mannix immediately saw through it, uh, <laughs> which is like, it's so interesting because it's like he has this insight because of his ignorance, which I always thought was a really cool idea. But he um, he just sort of takes that moment to enjoy it for what it is. They both know that it's fake and they're both reading it as something that's used to fool white people and both enjoying it. And I feel like that's Chris Mannix's moment where he just barely gets a shred of decency added to his character yeah. as he sort of enjoys this ploy by this smart, competent, educated black man. That's something that Samuel L. Jackson talked about a lot in um, in an interview that I watched to promote the movie. Right after it had premiered. So they were talking about it with spoilers because the guy who was interviewing him had seen it. He talks about how, you know, you think about a lot of the people in this movie would have never talked to a black person in their lives. And they have just talked down to them. They've never, like, talked with them specifically. And we can get into, and even though we're out of time, like, we as, as like, a sort of just discussionary group can talk our ears off about whether or not the N-word is used correctly in the movie. It's pretty gratuitous, but, like... I guess the the like the accuracy is like the main defense that someone could bring against it who agrees with it. But it's like what you do have, despite that, is a character who's well educated, well thought out, the smarter, best detective in a who done it, and he is also sort of changing the opinions of all these racists and like ignorant white antebellum yeah. folk through it just being himself around them. So overall, very gory, not so family friendly movie, but I did enjoy the ending. Good on you for powering through. It would have been easy to just stop at chapter three and be like, there's a lot of dick sucking and (laughs) word giving. And I know that this is your movie pick, James, but I'll talk about the first part. It's too long. It easily could have. And you did. You finished it it. in two sessions, though, I will say. That's fair. Did you stop at the intermission? I no, I was like right in the middle of one of the chapters. Tough. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird way. That's to, my superpower. To, to consume media, I can stop but... at any time. Um, I will say, uh, as we're closing off, I've got two things to say. 
I feel like I talked a lot about things I didn't like in this movie, but just the sheer amount of things in this movie makes it hard to talk about in an hour format. Um, and I really, really enjoyed this movie. Eight point two five out of ten. It's pretty good. I personally um, don't care if we go over either. Don't rush yourself through what you want to say about what you like about it. It's a long movie. Yeah, feel free to talk. Um, there was a lot of things in general, uh, whether it's in this podcast or in the movie itself, that just there's just so much to talk about, so much to think about. You know, like themes kind of blow over my head in particular. You know, like meanings of things because you just have to think about what's happening all the time not like hard but you just got to pay attention all the time um so like things like the lincoln letter being read at the end i didn't think about how his ignorance it, it wasn't real to either of them but it's so true um and i'm sure like uh whether it's multiple viewings which i generally don't really like saying oh it's better after you watch it the first time because i don't think you should have to watch a movie more than once um but uh, just on, you know, like retroflection or retrospection or whatever, um, you start putting those pieces together just because you have to actually process all of it. Um, but I would like to end the podcast with uh, my favorite quote from the movie, which I have saved for last. And it is by John the Hangman Ruth. You only need to hang mean bastards, but mean bastards you need to hang. <laughs> And with that, what is it, James? Find... What is it that you think you relate the most to with John Ruth? Is it the women beating or the constant use of the N word? Which is which is the closest <laughs> oh to form for um, you? Uh, you know, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know Honestly, what? You know what? I think you just demonstrated perfectly about the paying attention to this movie. Every shot of this movie has two scenes going on, and I know that that's intentional in the filmmaking. But if you watch the movie you'll see there's something going on in the background that's not super exciting. It doesn't have to distract you. But if you let it, you can watch an entire scene play out in just the background while the foreground has like the main narrative going on. And I find that so wonderful about it and so meticulous and such a great use of the film medium, like the, the wide-lensed 70-millimeter film. Honestly, one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when Obi rips the bear skin off the wall. Love it. I love it. I'm like, not going out there again. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, he does. Oh, yeah. I forgot he actually went back out. He does. He does. It's it, That's the – they picked straws. Obi lost. <laughs> yeah. I, I love – one of the greatest details of this movie that it took me up until like my fifth watch to realize is when John Ruth goes around taking everybody's weapons – he has that first real scene with Joe Gage where Joe Gage shows some sort of, you know, just like kind of kick back and like you can yeah, sort of tell – you can tell that if you if you weren't trusting Joe Gage before, you should lean into that a little bit at that point. Yeah. And something that it took me a while to realize is Joe Gage gives him his weapon. He gives up and then he walks over and sits at the table where they specifically stash the extra gun on the hook underwards. Oh. And he never, he never takes a second to be without a weapon. <laughs> interesting i did not put two and two together yeah uh, it took me a while to notice that but this time i was looking for it as well i uh, know i didn't want to ruin your send-off with the mean bastards need to hang line that is one of the better lines in it and we can't do another hour of this but it'd be easy to with how fucking long this movie is i could fill up a whole nother hour just saying that quote over and over again <laughs> um but no i uh 
I think that's about it. It's a great movie. I'm glad that you watched it, Penny, even though some of it was like, ah, oh, a drag or a droop. I do like that you've got it under your sort of, it's it's been absorbed into your brain computer. <laughs> and one day it will influence you in some way. Or you'll see fucking... Connected. You'll see Jennifer Jason Lee in something doing some totally different performance, <laughs> and you'll be like, "Oh, is that is that Daisy fucking Daisy Dahmer Dahmer? right there?" That played with Santa Claus in that one movie. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy that that's all you know Kurt Russell from. That you sh- we got to add Big Trouble in Little China to the to the viewing. I would love to see your opinions on that. It. Oh, you haven't seen it either, James? Nope. All right. Well, this it, might have just become a teaser for the next episode. This is also my my first no second Kurt Russell. I've seen parts of it, never seen the whole thing. Uh, the original it. I've also you, you mean the original of the thing? Oh yeah, what did I say? You said it, but that's fine. <laughs> oh. eh, Alright, so next week Chronicles the Christmas Chronicles, right? Christmas Chronicles next no, week. Next week we saw Roger Rabbit. Yeah, we're doing Who Framed Roger Rabbit next week. Uh, <laughs> You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Google Music, Apple Music, Podcasts, Spotify. Who the fuck asked? Yeah, who asked? 